Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted, and we are coming to you live tonight from Symphony Space in Manhattan. <laughs> Tonight's theme is really exciting. It's something I've had in the back of my mind for at least a couple of years, and uh, here it is. We're doing it. It's super, super exciting. The theme is Overlooked, and it is a wonderful series that uh, the New York Times has started doing. Um, Amy Padnani, the series creator, is here. Yeah. So we'll talk with her a little bit more about, about the series. But in a nutshell, uh, the Times is circling back and, and uh, writing obituaries for people, extraordinary people who didn't originally get them, who are originally overlooked. Um, as you know, on Relevant Tones, we like to intersperse conversation and music. And we have two other really special guests on the conversation end, filmmaker Vanessa Gould. And longtime newspaper man, Jacques Kelly from the Baltimore Sun. All right, so uh, all five of the composers that we have commissioned are here, and we're going to hear those pieces performed by the string quartet, The Overlook. But first, let's, uh, let's dive right in. My first question is for you, Amy. Talk about the genesis of this really important series that you're doing. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me. So... Basically, I started on the obituaries desk at the New York Times in early 2017. It was at a time when um, race and gender were just bubbling up, um, particularly in the conversation of equality. And we would get these reader, these emails from readers sometimes saying, hey, why don't you have more women and people of color in your obituaries pages? And I thought, yeah, you know what? Why don't we? So I went to my team and I asked them and they said, well, you know, the people who are dying today are from a time when women and people of color weren't invited to the table to make a difference. And so naturally, in a generation or two, you'll start to see more of them in the paper. While there's some truth to that answer, I just wasn't feeling satisfied. And so um, one day I happened to stumble upon this woman named Mary Outerbridge who had introduced tennis to America in the late 1800s. And I thought, well, I wonder if she got a New York Times obituary. Spoiler alert, she did not. And so <laughs> it sent me on this journey to look through the archives to see who else we missed. And so that's basically how it began. And Vanessa, you made a, a documentary film called Obit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, in, in 2010, um, an unknown artist who is a dear, dear friend of mine in Paris uh, died, and um, I contacted many newspapers around the world, and uh, the only newspaper that uh, contacted me back was the New York Times, and they ran a, a lengthy obituary on an unknown French artist who I guarantee you 99.999% of their readership had never heard of before, but they knew what they were doing, and it was a, it was a fantastic obituary by Marguerite Fox. And summarizing their life for the world to see was just fascinating for me as a documentary filmmaker. And so um, I slowly engaged with the New York Times. It took quite uh, a lot of effort to get all the permission we needed. But um, around the same time that Amy came to uh, 2017, I think it was, uh, the film came out. And uh, it profiled the entire desk of writers and talked a lot about subjects. I will say that uh, most of our filmmaking team was women. And we observed uh, the pattern that Amy described, but we didn't have the means to do anything about it. And so it was this beautiful thing that we had been kind of like noticing the inequities. And, uh, and then soon after, uh, Amy had the brilliant idea 
and uh, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, uh, it's really a pleasure for me because um, I, I remember seeing many, many trailers for Obit at Film Forum. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, hey, I'm, now I'm, ta now I'm talking to you, uh, which is really, really cool. And I want to hear from Jacques too, and then and then we'll take a, a music break. So Jacques, talk about your experience in the obituary desk. Well, I I started out in, in newspapers. I was 20 years old, and um, my father got me the job. He covered horse racing in Maryland, and um, he knew everybody, and I came from a family who lived in Baltimore forever, and they, um, I walked in, it was actually the old Hearst afternoon paper, the News American, they had a very gruff city editor, and he said, no, called everybody kid, he said, you've been to college, haven't you? And I said, two years. He said, well, you're going to write obits. Uh, and um, I always read them. I mean, I, I loved the obits and the, what we call the death notices, the classified paid announcements, and I, I jumped right in. and. Um, I have to confess one little leg up I had. I used to call my grandmother and ask her who was important in, in Baltimore. <laughs> She'd tell me, and uh, and, and spared no, uh, spared nothing, and uh, <clears throat> she uh, was rather political. And uh, actually, it was the ex-governor's wife who died, and uh, she didn't like the woman. She told me, "Oh, she used to pump beer in the tenth ward." And so that was one of my uh, <clears throat> early experiences. But I, uh, uh, Baltimore is an old and rich city, uh, rich in history, not in money. But in, and uh, uh, people, I'm just amazed at the level of readership of an obituary. The people, I swear, count the semicolons. Or they, they, they just love the survivors' lists. And uh, they also love to call up and tell you what you did wrong. <laughs> um, well, I want to hear a piece of music, and then we will continue this really wonderful conversation. So um, can everybody please give a really warm welcome to The Overlook. While they're setting up and getting ready, I asked each of the composers, it was going to be a little bit much um, and probably make the program go long to try to get each of them on mic, but I asked each of them to write a blurb about uh, their piece and the person that they chose. So the first piece is called I Laughed So Hard I Cried by Shannon Estriker, and it is inspired by the singer-songwriter Judy Sill, who um, I had never heard of, and I was listening to her music on Spotify today, and it's really fascinating pop music. It is uh, from its time, the late 60s, early 70s. She was uh, really big in the, in the California folk scene. Um, David Geffen of David Geffen Hall discovered her and uh, produced her first album. Um, well, he, he you know, ponied up the money for it. Uh, Graham Nash actually produced some of the music that's on it. And she has this really incredible style. She called her music uh, something like uh, mystic, occult, baroque <laughs> folk music, <laughs> you know. Um, and it fits. It, it, it's really, it's, it's much more complicated than any of the music that was going on at that time. But unfortunately, she had a really difficult life and uh, she passed away at the age of 35. So we'll talk more about her after the piece. Um, but let me read what Shannon says. He says, in the early part of my music career, the majority of my work was as a singer-songwriter. Though I now mostly compose classical music, I still feel inspired by the great singer-songwriters like Judy Sill, who were able to reveal their deepest emotional and spiritual needs in the simple structure of a folk song. I laughed so hard I cried is the final verse lyric of the profound song, The Lamb Ran Away with the Crown, from her first album. In my musical thank you letter to Judy Sill, I strove to maintain a simple and honest language that honored the poetic vulnerability her music so beautifully communicates. 
And now let's hear the piece performed by The Overlook.
So remember, all of the pieces tonight are world premieres. We're hearing them for the first time. We're the first humans to ever hear them. And because you're here, you hear them before anybody on the podcast hears it, which is super cool. So good for you. Um, Vanessa, I want to start with you, because uh, you're also a musician. What, what do you know about Judy Sill? Oh, I don't, I, uh, some people have sent me her music from time to time, but I have to say I don't know very much okay. about her. Uh, I feel like I got to know her, though. Yeah, that yeah. some very beautiful music. Yeah, Shannon, that was a very beautiful piece, yeah. Any other reactions to the music? Amy, what were, what were you, as you were listening, what were you thinking? Well, you know, I do remember editing uh, her overlooked obituary, and what stood out to me was the difficulty she dealt with in her life, the abuse, the emotional tragedies. Uh, I think there was also a lot of drug abuse in her relationship, and I really felt the depths of the levels of what she experienced throughout life in that music, so um, I have to agree. Yeah, um, and just anybody jump in, of course, as, as we move forward. Yeah, I agree. That that, that particular obituary really struck me, and, and it's, it's another one of those situations where you think, oh, what, what music might we have had, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if, if she had been able to, um, you know, live longer, of course. And I, I feel like, because the second album, um, she, she recorded two albums during her lifetime, and the second album actually has an orchestra on it that she conducts herself, and she was really starting to get pretty far out, you know, and I think, wow, I mean, you know, because um, in some ways, I think she was actually very lucky. Uh, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but she wasn't actually trying to be like a big um, star. She felt very, I think, um, comfortable doing the things that she wanted to do, the things that were in her head, because she was kind of, you know, very disconnected from people, you know. And so it, had, it was kind of a perfect situation for a creative person because you can be in your room doing all the creative thing that you want, but then you have someone like David Geffen going, yeah, I'll put that on a record for you, <laughs> you know, which I think is pretty great because usually you're like trying to sell the record or oftentimes people are trying to sell the record first. Um, but in her case, so yeah, I'm just particularly interested in, in um, where it could have gone. I'll also say from what I vaguely know, and Amy, what you describe, it sounds like she was someone for, for whom music was like the safest place and maybe the most comforting and expressive place. So it's especially nice to use music to uh, remember her. Mm -hmm. So Amy, how do you find the overlooked people? I mean, there must be so many, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, the sky's the limit, really. I mean, there's so many ways we can catch up. But um, usually people write in. I'll get a lot of pitches. Um, sometimes I'll hear from descendants of people. Oh, I just stumbled on my my grandfather's legacy as a taxidermist. That was one I got recently. Um, all kinds of ways. Sometimes I just stumble up upon people in my own research. I'll be editing a daily obituary and see a name and wonder if we did their obit and check the archives and then just add them to my other list. So all kinds of ways, and there's so many fascinating tales. Oh, that's amazing. And Jacques, you kind of touched on this a little bit before, but um, I mean, you know, who, how do you determine who gets an obituary? You know, uh, people think you have to know somebody on the inside to get an obituary, and it's not true uh, at all. Um, I, I love the telephone. I take all calls, um, read every email, just make a pitch to me, uh, and uh, I'll decide. But then you're going to have to work with me if you're the next of kin or the family. Uh, you're going to have to work hard. And I'm going to ask you to open trunks and uh, get out. Um, if you still have them, uh, military records, uh, employment records, we want to be specific on these things because we will be challenged. I know there's a lot of things like that, you know, fact-checking, getting the life right, obviously. I mean, this is, you know, it, it has to be 
Right. Um, but, but do you have any you know, anecdotes? I mean, something just kind of like, I mean, what, what's the more, more interesting person you came across or, or an interesting situation? Uh, well, you can get into some tremendous family battles um, uh, over <laughs> who, who controls the body. Uh, one uh, fellow was in, uh, a drug king in Baltimore, Little Melvin, and he was depicted in, um, in The Wire, maybe in a different name. Uh, and we heard he died. But of course, death has to be confirmed. And his, um, I know, so I just started calling um, the undertakers I know. I thought you were going to say drug dealers. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I just started calling drug dealers out of the yellow book. <laughs> and finally, a man named Brendan Wiley said to me, I have the body. <laughs> That's all it took. <laughs> And when the Times wrote its obit, <laughs> I was very, very pleased because it quoted the Baltimore Sun. <laughs> you remember this, Amy? Not really. Okay, I was just curious. I was just curious. Okay, I, 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 just to take away from you, the death had been confirmed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty wild. I mean, I would think it, it can take you into some pretty wild places. Yeah. Um, and Vanessa, when you were making Obit, any, any anecdotes or anything that you came across that, uh, you know? Oh, God. I mean, I just remember, so I interviewed all of the writers on the desk. And uh, um, one thing that was very, uh, two quick observations come to mind. One is that so many of them had written for other parts of the paper, the theater, the, the food, the metro, the arts. So these seasoned, seasoned writers. I mean, so they're they, they such pros. And they would have to write a life story in one day. And I just was kind of like um, mesmerized by their magical abilities to uh, write incredible obituaries on a day's notice, often having never had heard of the person uh, when they walked in the door that morning. But what was so funny when I was interviewing each of them was just how exasperating they found uh, issues of corrections, issues of factual details that, you know, sort of like the impossible tasks of writing an obituary, especially on deadline. Um, uh, and, and we were sort of talking in the green room before this about how you sort of, you're going to get criticized no matter what you do. So obviously you go for the, the facts. And I, um, but anyway, the, the, um, it, it was funny just how, uh, how taxing it was for them all to do it. I guess it's not funny, but thanks for being so understanding <laughs> of what we go through. She's like my therapist now. Uh, that is really incredible, though. I mean, to have to write that quickly with accuracy, with you know, you're paying homage to a human being. Totally, and I think I was told, and uh, I should ask Amy this question, but I think there's more facts in an obituary than just about any other article in the newspaper, and 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 big facts that you have to correct if you get wrong. So. I absolutely have to agree. It, it, it's just fact-loaded. <laughs> and uh, it does tax an editor because, you know, the checking of those facts. Mm -hmm. uh, the, a, a normal news story, I would say, maybe has a dozen where we have 30 or 40. Um, and, um, and, and I'm, as I said, I like to work the telephones. And you do hear from people if you get it wrong. Uh, amazingly so, you hear. I usually refer to an obit as a landmine for potential corrections. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's, uh, the next um, piece is inspired by the life of Jovita Idar. Um, Amy, do you remember 
Anything about her editing that uh, story? Yeah, very much so. She uh, was Mexican-American who lived in Texas, and she fought really hard for Tejanos, for uh, women, for education for children, and she was a suffragist. So um, she spent her whole life. She was also a journalist and a teacher. She, her father was a journalist, and she fell into the career right after him and used it as a mouthpiece for these various groups that she fought for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a particularly really moving uh, story when I, when I read her, her life story. I mean, at one point, uh, and of course, you know, I, I grew up watching Chuck Norris as a Texas Ranger, so I'm like, they're the, they're the good guys, right? Uh, they're not always the good guys. <laughs> they were not always the good guys, and... Uh, you know, they, they were at one time going to shut down her uh, newspaper, and, and she met them at the door and confronted them and would not let them shut it down, which is just, I mean, you know, amazing, right? <laughs> uh, I picture Angelina Jolie in, in the part of Jovita Idar, you know, standing down. Still, Chuck, it would still be Chuck Norris, I think, uh, even now. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, at any rate, uh, really a, a phenomenal woman. And I want to read uh, the pieces by um, Gilbert Galindo. So I want to read what he said, and then we'll hear. The piece is called La Esperanza de la Gente, The Hope of the People. And uh, Gilbert says, when I was reviewing the list of those who were featured in the New York Times Overlooked Obituary series, I was delighted to come across someone that I could not only relate to, but someone to whom I could look at as a pioneer and advocate for the voice of Hispanics in Texas and Mexican-Americans in general, being a Texas Mexican or Tejano myself. It boggles my mind, but does not surprise me that she was not more widely known, let alone taught in our Texas history books. I did not know of her, and I bet if I ask around back home in Texas, not many would know her as well. She predates the Chicano civil rights movement of the 60s by nearly half a century, bringing to attention issues that are important, education, equal rights, and asserting your right to exist in a system that at times works against you. She is someone to whom we Mexican-American, Chicanos, Tejanos, can look up to for inspiration, a hope for those feeling less than or feeling limited in our ability to achieve more in the society due to the known and felt sentiments of others. She teaches from her actions that you can stand up to unjust authority through subversive just action. Even though I do see racial relations improving in some corners of today's society, the ugly history of oppression is still felt, and we still need inspirational figures such as Jovita Idar to inspire us to continue peacefully working for an equal and just society. As far as my piece is concerned, La Esperanza de la Gente, it gives several moods of reflection, celebration, alienation, sweetness, and a bit of vigor. Also took the opportunity to include an original Mexican tune without words, as I've been doing in previous works. Uh, okay, let's do it. Uh, this is La Esperanza de la Gente by Gilbert Galindo, performed by The Overlook.
Any reactions from uh, our panelists on the music? Oh, I loved that. I felt like, okay, I was just in Mexico last month to start, so in the very beginning, you know, I could definitely hear some traditional notes mm -hmm. of music you would hear in the streets. It's almost like an arc of her life. This is her background, her childhood. Then you get into the sort of sadness as she's growing up and recognizing the injustices around her. I definitely heard some, like, battling, like the fights that she went through. Um, I just felt like it, it was a really nice arc of, of her life. Uh, the next person that we want to feature is um, Maria Orosa. She, she developed a kind of superfood for the, the Filipino troops when they were defending their island from the Japanese uh, during World War II. Um, is there anything to add to that, Amy? Uh, yeah, she was the inventor of banana ketchup. Have yes. you never had banana ketchup? I have not. <laughs> I've been to the Philippines and I have not had banana ketchup, and I only learned it existed when uh, reading about her. Um, apparently, uh, tomatoes do not grow very well in that climate, but the soldiers were craving uh, ketchup. And so she said, well, I'll try to use some bananas and, you know, a little vinegar, some food coloring they won't notice. And uh, it could, ended could up they, being could its they just own put thing. mayo on their fries? I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> it, it ended up becoming its own thing. It's still uh, one of the most popular condiments in the Philippines. Yeah, so Heinz actually picked it up. They said, okay, all right, you know, I, I, you can imagine at first, we're not touching banana ketchup, but then, you know, there's money in it, so they did. Uh, which is kind of surprising to me. Um, Lynn Bechtold is the composer. Sorry to throw this out to you while you're in the audience, but did you tell me you were going to bring banana ketchup? Yeah. All right, we can all try can some all banana ketchup <laughs> after the show. Uh, we'll get some Lay's potato chips and, and try some banana ketchup um, after the show. So I'm going to read, um, I, I may uh, excerpt a little bit, Lynn, but I'm going to read because um, we talked about some of this stuff. So uh, the piece is called The Best Things Come to Those Who Act by Lynn Bechtold. And she says, I found the life of Maria Rosa to be quite inspiring as she was a true mensch or a womensch. Let that sink in. All right. At a, <laughs> at a time when many women weren't able to attend university, she traveled from the Philippines to the University of Washington in Seattle, where she earned both bachelor's and master's degrees in pharmaceutical and food chemistry. I feel like this is something that comes up with, with all of the women that we're featuring tonight. There's just this incredible work ethic. I mean, I feel like such a slacker after reading about these people. Uh, it's unbelievable. In the summers between her years at UW, she worked at salmon canneries to support her education costs. Her education and her job led her to the inventions she became known for, banana ketchup and uh, soylac, which is the superfood I was talking about, a nutrient-rich drink made from soybeans Helpful during wartime food shortages. Oh yeah, she was also the first to can produce in uh, the Philippines. Um, the, the, the idea of canning food was not known at that time, so that allowed her people to have healthy fruits and vegetables out of, se out of season. Uh, she was also a true Philippine patriot, serving in a guerrilla group that helped to achieve Philippine independence. Unfortunately, she was killed actually by friendly fire from American troops. Um, while working in the lab, that didn't kill her, they moved her to the hospital, and it was bombed again. And, and uh, yeah, I know, so um, quite a story. Uh, back to Lynn. As I grew up in Pittsburgh, the world capital of Heinz ketchup, I was initially attracted to Maria's life story due to my curiosity about the banana ketchup. When I wrote the work, I based the musical sections on three elements of her life, the banana ketchup, that's the opening of the piece, uh, her patriotism, and her time at the salmon canneries. The patriotic sections highlight a rhythm I liked from a Philippine folk song I discovered called Pista Sai Nayon, which is basically a song for a festive street fair. 
The banana ketchup sections feature a slightly lazy waltz, as I imagine waiting for the ketchup to come out of the bottle because it is very <laughs> viscous, yes. <laughs> and the cannery sections are more mechanical with dense notes and more dissonance. Uh, let's hear the overlook. Perform. The best things come to those who act by Lynn Bechtold. <laughs>
best things come to those who act by Lynn Bechtold. Um, the next piece is called Repare, and uh, it is inspired by the life of Remedios Varro. And Vanessa, you know the work of Remedios Varro. Do you want to, like, what, what captivates you about her work? Um, gosh, well, the, the portrayal of, of women is strong. There's a power um, in her authorship and in her um, imagery and, and, and a voice that I get of what I imagine Remedios Vero might have been like. I've looked at a lot of pictures of her, too. Um, I'm very excited to hear this music. Um, the piece is called Repare. It's by Melissa Paranosic, and she says, I intuitively and immediately responded to the work, the life, the aesthetic, the symbolism, the mysticism, and the magic of Remedios Vero. I was especially taken by her play with light and duality. Without trying to imitate or illustrate her style, I responded emotionally and played with melodies, motives, and materials coming in and out of focus and constantly tricking us, eventually becoming something quite different than what their original trajectory seemed to be. So let's hear Repare by Melissa Paranosic.
Yeah, I've spent my whole life around music, uh, music rehearsals, concerts, etc. But it's always it's such a pleasure to be this close to musicians, to music making. I mean, like we're a few feet. I'm, I'm the furthest. We're just Jack is like, oh my god! I mean, you're in the quartet. You're basically in the quartet. <laughs> we'll get you a bass. You can, you know, play the low end. <laughs> uh, it's just such a, you know, it's such a treat. I mean, I absolutely love it. And uh, and and to hear music for the very first time performed by such a, a fine quartet is is really a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Um, going back to some general, I, I have a, a, a question, um, probably more, more for Amy and Jacques, but, but um, Vanessa, please weigh in. It, it, you know, it, it's interesting. Oh, well, actually, Vanessa, please, yeah, because when I saw um, Obit, I thought, you know, I would never really, I always skip that section in the newspaper. Um, and, and then, and there's like this whole thing in the trailer where they're talking about, and, and in the film as well, it's not macabre. It's like, you know, a celebration. And, and I was like, oh, I never really thought about it that way. I always thought it was more like, you know, an obsession with death. Um, and, but so my, my point is that with Overlooked, though, there's all kinds of people reading this. It's hugely popular and successful. Why, what, why? Why do you think that is? Well, I think there were just so many people who wanted to see themselves recognized in this section for so long. I mean, I myself am a woman of color. I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants. And, you know, when I spoke earlier of those readers who would say, why don't you have more uh, people like me in the pages? Um, you know, it really, um, it spoke to me. And like, why, why are we not represented? And so um, I think that a lot of young readers um, caught on to this, you know, went kind of wild on social media when it first launched. Um, definitely a lot more women. And uh, it, it was just a lot of people were just yearning to see themselves, I think. What's next for the series? I mean, there's so much happening. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah, sure. I'm actually wrapping up the first book. It's an adult book compilation that'll be out in November. Um, it's available for pre-sale now, I believe. Uh, it's about 65 overlooked obits. A lot of them are brand new, never having been published in the paper before. And then after that, I'm turning to a children's book, and then there'll be a young adult book as well. Um, but the series is continuing. I mean, like I said earlier, the sky's the limit. I have such a long list of people waiting to be published. And so it publishes roughly uh, twice a month in mm -hmm. the newspaper. Uh, <clears throat> I'd just like to say in the newspaper industry, you have opened up the world of obits. Why? I love that. I love that. I, is the Baltimore Sun thinking about doing something no, similar? No. Is, is this spreading beyond the New York Times? <laughs> OK, I'm just curious. <laughs> no. Um, we have not, but we do have the conversation about additional um, you know, people of color and, and women in the obit page. And uh, it, frankly, it can be daunting. Um, I, you know, I try to make my peace with the undertaking community in Baltimore to pitch me some ideas. And uh, it's not very successful. Candidates, and I often find uh, the submissions are underreported, or you know, I'll, I'll go to town on it. I'll, I'll work it. Um, uh, it remains a struggle for us too in our daily obituaries. Uh, we also have more conversations. We, you know, I mean, I don't consider it lowering our bar or our standard to include more women and people of color, but you do have to consider the uh, the struggles that they face to get noticed. And I think when you dig a little deeper into someone's story, you know. Um, 
again, as a daughter of immigrants, I know that uh, South Asians, for example, do not talk about their lives. They are very quiet. The, the rule is to assimilate and work hard. And so you're not going to know about the legacy they left behind unless you're really digging deep. And so we do try to dig a little bit deeper now um, with the people who come across our desk. But it, it is still definitely a struggle to find that balance. That's a real fascinating point that you make. In a lot of cultures, uh, I mean, standing out is not what you want to do. You, it, it's a, you know much more of a of a group ethos, and, and so that, that yeah, that, that really makes sense. I hadn't even considered that at, at all. Um, I'm such an American. I'm like, you know, yeah, me, you know. <laughs> but yeah, obviously in other cultures, they're like, no, 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 I'm part of a, you know, a large society um, of people. Well, it's all really fascinating. I mean, I just find myself looking at, at the Overlook page online all the time. I, I, it's so interesting to read about these people that I had no idea. And it's like, you can really go down this really fun rabbit hole because you read about somebody and that leads you to somebody else. And then, you know, it's so much more fun than Wikipedia, uh, I think, personally. Glad to hear that. <laughs> more fun than Wikipedia. <laughs> I give that to the Times. Um. New tagline. <laughs> um, all right, let's hear our final piece of music. And um, this is inspired by the life of Mary Eliza Mahoney. And speaking of hard workers, uh, I mean, this woman was working 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, do you, you want to talk about Mary? Uh, yeah, we can go back and forth a little bit, because you might remember more than I do, since it's a little rusty. But she was the first black nurse in America. Um, I believe wasn't given a chance. I think she started off cleaning. Uh, that was the only job they would give her. and then she pushed her way into nursing school. Yeah, I and mean, that's exactly right. Yeah, 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 she was in Boston, she wanted to be a nurse, and, and they said, uh, you know, no, you can be a maid. And then she just kept pushing back and pushing back and pushing back, and, and she was incredibly talented. And uh, they, they uh, you know, they accepted 45 people into the school, somewhere around there, and only four were able to make it through, and she was one of them. Her sister did not make it, even even her, her you know, sister. Um, and I don't think it was a talent thing. I think that, that uh, Mary Eliza Mahoney just, she worked. I mean, she had talent, you know, but she just wouldn't, would not let it go, one, one of those people. And um, so she became a nurse. When, when she was a nurse, though, she didn't go into public practice because she was still facing so much discrimination. And so she went into private practice, um, basically being a, a nurse for wealthy white people who grew to love her. And, and you know, even uh, upon her passing, there were people who were saying, like, she saved my life. She was the most amazing uh, nurse. And, and so um, re really a very inspiring figure in, uh, in so many ways. And just, I mean, that, you know, like we Americans talk about, you, you, you work hard, you get ahead, you know, like, but it's not really true because we put so many obstacles in front of certain people. And she jumped over every one of those obstacles. So it's a super inspiring life. And uh, I want to thank also the Overlook uh, Quartet. They're the ones who planned the, the program order tonight and really well, well planned. Uh, yeah, so we end on this really wonderful, hopeful note. Because <laughs> um, I had a different program order in mind, and it was terrible. It, 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 you know, we would not, wouldn't have been nearly as good an evening. So thank you. <laughs> uh, all right, let me, uh, the, the composer here is Nyla Nombeko, and I want to read what she has to say. The piece is called String Quartet Number no. 2, Mary Eliza Mahoney. And Nyla says, I have a motif that is central to the piece and is heard throughout. I look at that motif as a steady presence throughout the piece, as no matter what Mary Eliza faced, she kept pushing. She always demonstrated great perseverance. As a teenager, she set out to be a nurse and did not attend nursing school until her early 30s. That was enough time to give up and lose interest, but she didn't. She was single-minded in her pursuit to become a nurse. What I love about her story is her tenacity and her success. At that time, there were so many obstacles for black people 
and yet her story ends triumphantly. So let's hear Nyla Nombeko's piece, String Quartet Number no. 2, Mary Eliza Mahoney. Uh, the composer is Nyla Nobeko.
uh, our musicians tonight, Monica Davis on violin, Ravenna Lipchik on violin, Laura Metcalf on cello, and filling in with the overlook tonight on viola is Andrew Griffin. I want to thank everybody at Symphony Space for uh, hosting us. Uh, it's a really, really great place. I hope everyone will come back to future Relevant Tones events. And uh, Amy, I have a thought for you. I was thinking, you know, if the uh, New York Times wanted to donate somewhere around a half million, we could uh, commission a piece for everybody in the Overlook No More series. Can you, can you run that up the, the, the flagpole over there? I'll see what I can do. Yeah, see what they say. Just kind of, you know, we'll, we'll get them drunk. <laughs> we'll pretend it's 1960, take them out for a, a, a three-martini lunch. <laughs> this is a brilliant plan. You have to come and help orchestrate it. Then. Yeah, then I'll, I'll make the ask. Um, I want to say, too, with Relevant Tones, we've been very inspired. We're going to do a, an overlooked show, a composer named Tui St. George Tucker that will air um, in the summer, a composer who's not nearly as well-known as she should be. So um, I, uh, it's a very small way, but, but your, your series is really inspiring so many people and so many things. So congratulations, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, and Vanessa, I mean, I got to meet you through this. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this. Really, really wonderful filmmaker, musician. Uh, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Jacques made the trip from Baltimore. My goodness, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, I want to thank Esopus, uh, the Esopus Foundation, and Todd Lippi. Esopus is E-S-O-P-U-S. -S. Check out all of the great work that they do. Um, uh, the, the magazines are, are just are, are unbelievable. And uh, they're still available, right, on the website? Yeah, yeah. So um, really, really fantastic work there as well. And I hope you'll come out on May 20th for the Sound of Silent Film Festival right here at Symphony Space. And on June 23rd, the next uh, collaboration between ACM and Esopus is Relevant Tones Live Cosmicomics. Uh, and that'll be a lot of fun, so hopefully you'll come out for that too. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. On behalf of Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bostead. Thanks so much for listening.